Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. We'll edit that out. Come again. <laughs> so our very special guest today is Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg. You um, pronounced that correctly. I did very pronounce good. it correctly. I've been saying it all morning into the mirror. After I said I'm a good person and people respect me. Um, Eric is senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And I was going to make fun of him because he runs his own podcast called Trillions till I noticed that he gets 32,000 listeners. But uh, we have Eric on today uh, specifically to talk about a book that he wrote and that's coming out this month. Uh, on It's called The Bogle Effect about Mr. Bogle at Vanguard. I know you've written uh, other books, Eric, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how you decide to write a book, how do you pick a topic, and obviously this is something that people in our industry will be really, really interested in. Yeah, um, I, I think the best way I can describe it, you have to, it's like going to a planet and, and living there for two years, so you have to want to live there, and I wrote, it's my second book, the first book I wrote was on ETFs, which I love, I love ETFs, and I was, I'd gotten a lot of knowledge about them, and I felt, you know, I people were starting to ask me my personal life, like, what are ETFs, and I thought, well, these people could probably use like some information on them. But I spent, you know, two years writing that book and I interviewed like 50 people. But at the end, you're exhausted, but you learn a lot as you go. And I like that. And so with Bogle, I felt that it was a planet that I wanted to explore for a couple of years. I felt that um, I had uh, three, three hour long interviews with him. Plus, we exchanged emails. He was on a couple of my shows. And I felt like, after he passed away, I was just, I have a dictaphone that I kept them all on and it's on my desk. I can l- literally look at it. And I, I thought, you know, this is a really great man and uh, not everybody gets to spend time with people like that and get their views on everything. I should convert this to a book, um, you know, just for posterity, you know, for, for my kids, for other people, just to go, uh, finally, a Wall Street story with a happy ending. Uh, there aren't many. Um, <laughs> and so I w- wanted to do that. Plus I have covered Vanguard as an analyst and a research analyst. I work in a big research department and Van- nobody covers Vanguard because they're private. Like my colleague in banking covers BlackRock and Goldman Sachs and early asset management and banking, but Vanguard's private. And so a lot of people, even in my research group, don't know a ton about them. But I look at the flows and I'm like, this company takes in like, like half the money basically. And the other half goes to Vanguardian type funds. So the, a lot of the industry is basically run by Vanguard, or it's the governing force right now in asset management. Um, and so I, use, I just wanted to combine those th- two things, all that data and research, and then the audio and the human element of Bogle and the character. I thought he always reminded me of my grandfather more than my father. He's not a boomer. He's more of like that World War II type guy with he had paintings of ships on the wall and a, <laughs> a great sense of humor. And I wanted to capture that as well. I, I kind of missed that generation. And so it was the combination of all that that I wanted to uh, put on page. It's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating um, person, obviously. And I'd be interested to get your perspective on, um, not not asking you to summarize the whole book, but um, the guy clearly was a, a visionary and, and clearly had a an enormous impact on changing the landscape about how ordinary people invest. Um, and uh, I'd just be interested to hear you uh, say a little bit about how, how you view that impact and what was it about him 
that uh, created the sense of vision, either, you know, in, in his personal background or uh, his, his experiences he was coming up. Um, at, how did this all come to be? Yeah, and, and maybe before you answer it, if you could leg into it and just explain to us, like, his radical idea of mutual ownership, yeah. what that even means, right? Because we, we, we have a broad swath of listeners here, and I know we all know in the industry, but I think people would be interested. Yeah, and I, that's really also what I wanted to do. I felt the index fund had gotten way too much credit for index investing, if that makes sense. Index funds are not useful to people unless they're dirt cheap. And they're only dirt cheap because Vanguard made them that way. As you guys know, Wall Street's general, you know, the general force in Wall Street is to try to get as much money from the clients as you can, not like give them money. <laughs> it's, it's just not normal. <laughs> but, so this guy created a structure where the funds own the company and the investors in the funds, the investors own the funds. So ipso facto, the investors vote for a board that represents the funds out on the board of Vanguard. And so when there's profits, they vote to lower the fees instead of you know making the owner super rich. And so while people get paid well there, there's no owner who's like a you know ten time billionaire. You know that that's like like at Fidelity or some other places. And there's no uh, stock, and so there's no shareholders getting rich uh, that way either. So the fund investors owning the company almost makes it like a co-op. The insurance companies are sort of designed this way. That's why they last so long. You know, when you see mutual, mutual um, in the name of an insurance company, it tends to sound like old because it, it is. <laughs> so uh, mutual structures tend to last like, you know, 100 years because they just never flame out. You know, that's a good incentive. Uh, the client's incentives aligned with the companies is, is powerful and so and, and can have staying power. And so over the years, as they got more assets, their fees of their funds started at like 50 basis points. And then they, which is 0.50%. And then as they lowered fees with all the profits they had, they ended up going down to, as you know, today, three, four basis points. You can pretty much get a fully diversified portfolio for nothing. But that process of lowering those fees took like 45 years. It didn't happen overnight, but it was the structure that did it. And then the index fund was the perfect uh, vehicle to get combined with that structure. Although in the book, I premised that had index and or index funds not been a thing, and Vanguard only did active, they'd probably be the biggest active fund company five, six times over, because they would be bringing a gun to a knife fight constantly. They'd have the lowest fees, and they would ultimately win out over the long run, and their funds would be the best performing. Um, it just so happens they found something even better than that, which was the index fund, which is perfect vehicle for what they were doing. And so those two forces sort of came together, and that's what really sparked this. But as I say in the book, Vanguard also is getting into the advisory business, which also already has them into private equity. Um, as you know, commission-free trading is a big deal. Vanguard kicked that off. They offered commission-free trading before Schwab and Fidelity, uh, at least for their ETFs. And so it's not just funds. Um, as you know, they're also big in ETFs, which Vogel was not a fan of, but they're big in there anyway. They're big in smart beta. They've got big value and growth and momentum. So I really, like, they're big in ESG. And so I... I took all these different areas and I used Vanguard almost as a uh, vehicle to go and discuss all these different areas of the financial world and how they're changing, uh, mostly for the better, because of what this guy did. Uh, th this is a powerful force. And I think you have other companies like BlackRock now who took some of what Vogel laid down and now they're out there advocating for cheap ETFs and, and this, that and the other. But I really think, again, if you pull the thread on, on a lot of this stuff going on in all these different areas, you get you wind up back in the early 70s 
inside this guy's decision to turn over all the profits to the fund investors. And the other thing that was interesting is I also, no one's copied that. It's been 50 years. Yeah. And I found that interesting. No one's copied the structure. So Why I asked people. you think? Yeah. I, well, I asked, I interviewed 50 people. I asked every one of them, why do you think no one's copied the structure? And everybody had the same answer, which was, well, because there's no economic incentive to do that. And then I, so then I said, well, why did he do it? And they were like, well, that's a good question. <laughs> so, so there's a whole chapter four called Explaining Bogle, which, which really, I try to really understand what produced a guy who would do this. Um, and I, I did my best to get at that. And two big things that were, I thought were a couple big things. One or he grew up in the great depression. So he just, he just didn't have a, he didn't have a love of money. Like a lot of people on wall street, he was frugal, like a lot of people from that generation. And just, I don't know, was, uh, looked like characters and serving people. It was just kind of, you know, old school that way. The other thing is he lived through the sixties and he had sold out his company for like a high flying, like, um, growth manager. And it all crashed and burned in his face. And I think it was that experience that led him to like never take the bait again, to be conservative, stick to like low turnover, low fees, and just he locked into that. Because the thing with Wall Street and investing is it's there's these cycles that come and go. And it's hard, it's hard to resist the cycles because they last like three or four years longer than you think they should. And people start to just drop out and join the cycle. And then it does eventually usually blow up and there's mean reversion. And he was just, I think the sixties taught him to do that. And then the other thing was his heart. He was, um, had a weak heart and was told he was going to die at age 35. And so his doctor actually said like, you should just go to like Cape Cod and like just chill out the last couple of years. But he didn't, he, you know, fought back against that. Um, then got a heart transplant. Um, I believe when he was early sixties, I want to say, but he, he was at the hospital all the time because of his heart. He um, even brought a defibrillator with him to play squash, uh, telling the guy playing with him, look, if I fall over, you got to like use this machine on me. <laughs> and, you know, the idea of death being so close to you your whole life, I think, gives you a jolt of purpose that um, was a gift, even though it was probably seemed like a drag at the time. So I, I try to break down all the things that that I think went into manufacturing somebody who would make this their their whole life uh because it's just still it's so unusual for wall street although i did come up with one sort of interesting thing which was that he had enough money he just didn't want more he was immune from that want of more that drives a lot of wall street that said he could never get enough adulation um his son was telling me he loved when people said vanguard you know help me for college or my sons you know um i got a new house whatever he loved people telling him that and, and he could get a ne never get enough of that. And so in a way, usually if people want adulation, they go into, uh, I don't know, uh, the entertainment industry or something, or maybe the priesthood. He was miscast, I think, almost in a way in that he didn't want more money. He just had a, like a, a, an immunity to that, but he did crave that. So I try to also offer up, he wasn't a saint. He had needs and flaws like everybody else, but he just was different. Um, and he was, again, it was a, uh, just a highly anomaly of a person and a company that I think is just worth dissecting in which I did. And so I, again, I even went to dissecting the person and his character in a whole chapter. Did you uh, talk to him about culture? So like as one of the founders of IEX, we, you know, we, we strive, you know, to, to build a culture and keep the culture, maintain the culture. 
And I'm sure, obviously, you've gone to Malvern to interview people, and it's it's kind of like an amazing campus. And you, you said do things different on Wall Street. Not not that other people on Wall Street are are bad by any means, but um, there's a sense of humility when you go visit like the trading desks down there. Everybody that I've met very pleasant from like their security guards the whole way through. It's it's really. It just seems very different for for when you, especially when I came from a broker or as an exchange vendor. When you usually go to see your clients like that, it, it's usually more intimidating. There's just some different underlying culture I found at Vanguard. Yeah, there is. It's out in Malvern, Pennsylvania, so it's a lot of people with minivans, and it's a little more chill than like a city culture. But also, again, they are they are into the psychic income they get from knowing that people are saving a ton of money by using their funds. And I did talk to him about culture, and that was one worry he had was that Vanguard's culture would erode, and people would sort of forget that the, the sort of mission that they're on. But he did think that Vanguard had the best chance to maintain their leadership position because of the culture, and because they provide products that um, are pretty frictionless. Which is, you know, that's a long. I mean, getting the whole market for three basis points is such a good deal, and it distracts the market. So, like, unlike an active manager where they might have a good run, but when they start underperforming, people tend to bail. This is just going to give the market, and a lot of people have resigned to that's all they want for the rest of their lives. And so they, I think, culturally and the products uh, sort of work together in tandem, but he definitely was interested in that. I will say he did have to struggle a little bit with the idea that, oh, we're the low-cost provider, we're going to disrupt the industry, and then people internally going, well, will, will I get paid? Because obviously you could probably leave Vanguard and go to a different company in New York and get a lot more. And so he came up with this sort of partnership program to try to address that. So he did have to balance the tension between employees, you know, wanting to get raises and, and get paid well, uh, because, you know, in, in the marketplace, they might have gotten more. I will say to your point about going there and the trading floor, I've been to a lot of offices and you're right. There's a sort of alpha male-ish vibe, a, uh, you know snarky kind of thing that goes on on a lot of trading floors and it's kind of interesting there's the culture can be um fun and, and interesting and there's a lot of like you know rise and falls and it's a very dramatic industry that that culture is not like that it's more of like a state straight line and what i found interesting was that nowadays i do think there's more people who are out there trying to do good in wall street i think um both the world has turned the internet has helped and maybe bogle's influence a bit but I have a whole thing at the end where I list 10 people doing Bogley and things, and I have Brad in there. I think there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. But what I, what I try to point out in the book is Bogle was doing this, this kind of culture and making these kind of products in the 80s and then the 90s. You know, the right. 80s were like – so I have this speech where I have Gordon Gecko doing The Greatest Good in movie theaters in December 1987, <laughs> and then Bogle at his Christmas party – Basically, just talking the same way he would today, you know, we've got to focus on the client. We've got to keep costs low. And I just thought the, the juxtaposition between those two was dramatic. He was doing it before it was cool, basically. And I think then the 90s hit, and he didn't take that bait either. He kept, you know, this focus. So when I talked to Brad and I interviewed him, I think he could relate to, A, the time it took for Vanguard to grow. It took them 25 years to get to 10% market share. And Bogle, when he left, there was basically, if you look at a line of their assets, it's like Bogle's all only at the bottom. And then when Brennan took over and then McNabb, and that's when the assets grew. But the foundation he laid was crucial. But once it hit, it really grew quickly. Uh, 7.3 of their 8.3 trillion assets came after the 30th birthday of the firm. But because the, the problem with Bogle and what I really also explore is 
he was operating outside of the entire system. Um, he would not pay brokers through the fund. So the fund did not offer a kickback to brokers. So the intermediaries wanted no part of Vanguard. So he had to basically convince people to leave the system and to come to them. And that, that also took a long time. And, and I, and they even rejected money at the beginning. They didn't like the people who were trading. And so they just said, no, we don't want you. And so the rejection of money, which is hard to do when you're young, and the idea of operating on outside of a system and trying to get people to leave this other system is is really hard. And it takes a long time. And I think there's some similarities between you guys in that story. And I, you know, again, so trying to, to really percent market share. <laughs> we're gonna have Eric. to wait thirty years. I'm gonna be propped up with an option. No, we're ten years old. Only fifteen more years. Yeah. Eric guarantees us ten uh, percent yeah, market thanks share. Thanks a lot, Eric. Cheers. Uh, best be best podcast guest ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's uh, to to your earlier point. I think that how maybe helps to explain um, why these people haven't copied it because it'd be very difficult to copy. Clearly, this model to work requires like an in- incredible scale, um, which they. But it sounds weird to say that there's no incentive for people to, because Van, Vanguard, by any measure, has been in, incredibly, enormously uh, uh, successful. Um, but uh, but is it maybe a question that it's just uh, it's very hard to co- copy the model in the same way and be that successful because they've done it so well? Well, um, you know, I guess I would think that based on what you just said, somebody somewhere would have tried it over yeah. 45 years. But yeah. um, when I interview people, again, most people's answers were like, well, because nobody wants to drive a Volvo. Uh, people who work that hard 11 hours a day, six days a week, they don't want to just turn over the money to their clients. Also, it's maybe tough to get capital and investing if your your business model is, yeah, the uh, my customers own the company. So there's some real life issues with that. Now, the reason Bogle did it was not just his makeup, but there was a, in his company Wellington, which he ran in the 60s, he sold out uh, a lot of the voting share to this shoot for the stars growth manager. And when the 60s market dropped and the 70s bear market came in, it was it was it got ugly. And he fought with those guys and he thought they were too crazy and they thought he was too cantankerous and they had a huge bifurcation. And but as chairman of the funds themselves, I won't get into details, but he basically had to find a way to work with them. And the one way he could sell to the board that he wasn't going to get rich off of his idea was that he would make the funds mutually owned. And so there was a issue of saving his job and some self-interest in creating that structure. And he also said, we'll just make this company, we'll do back office work for you. Um, You do the investing. And so they had voting control of the company board. And so they let him do that because they didn't want to do administration and stuff. And they said, well, you're mutually owned. You're not going to get rich either. Fine. So it wasn't like he hit his head in the toilet and said, I'm going to change the world. It was really this really crazy uh, situation where he kind of got fired and got into a fight with his partners. And that is why it is also, I think, probably a unique structure because it took this really unique freak situation that you really don't see ever happening between an asset manager and the company and the investment advisor and the funds themselves. It was a it was a really quirky situation. Um, and then when they when Vanguard formed and they were a back office company, um, one of the things that they said is you cannot run money. You know that's what we're going to do. And so the index fund came along. You read about indexing like a year after and said, wait a second, an index fund isn't running money. So that's sort of another way that it was kind of lucky and convenient. <laughs> so it wasn't like this guy was like 
I don't know, had this complete vision of all this. A lot of it was, you know, what's that phrase? Um, necessity is the mother of invention. It was a lot of that in there. And so that's also why I don't think it'll be repeated anytime soon. Because if you, when you read the book, you'll realize the serendipity and the circumstance was so like, you know, million to one-ish that that's another thing I think that you, why you probably don't see that structure popping up uh, since then. Yeah. Or like I like quote that I heard recently, um, you make your own luck, but you also got to be lucky. Uh, who who, like who the, said that quote? I, I don't know. Was that you, Ronan? That was me. That okay. was me. All right. Here I copied it though. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claiming trademark on that, <laughs> but um, so, so we're, we're, we're looking forward to read the book, Eric. De definitely. Um, we'll, we'll switch topics real quick back to your, your day job, but equally something that you're very passionate about. You also wrote a book on this. So, so clearly you're passionate on ETFs, but we wanted to touch briefly kind of like hot topic, obviously, uh, right now is Bitcoin ETFs. And if you, if you could sort of talk the audience through what the short history is of Bitcoin ETF proposals and are any of them approved? Because it's, it's pretty, it's, I, I see it all the time right now. Yeah, I mean, short history is not going to work there. Uh, <laughs> there's been like 80 filings over eight years. Uh, it's, you've never seen anything quite like it. Um, and they're all, they try all these different ways to try to appeal to the SEC. Um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to have seen the movie Cannonball Run, uh, yes. which is oh, about yeah. a, a car race. Whoever gets to New York to LA the fastest wins a million dollars. And it's just that you guys try to, you can't get, get to try not to get pulled over by the cops. Yet you want to go as fast as possible. One guy took an ambulance. Uh, two women took a Lamborghini. Um, there was uh, the J James Bond and two guys dressed as priests. And this reminds me of the filing of Bitcoin ETF. Some they'll try these little differences to try to get over and through the SEC. The only thing that's worked so far is putting futures into the ETF. And the reason for that is that Gensler feels the futures are regulated by the CFTC. And therefore, they are, quote, regulated under his Gensler domain. And he's, he's okay with that. What he isn't okay with was once you get out of that to the crypto exchanges, he calls that the Wild West. He thinks that there should be more regulation and accountability out there before he lets investors go out there through the spot ETF. And so right. we're now and, at a standstill. To, to be fair, this was a position of the SEC before Gensler came on board. I mean, he has, he has continued that. Um, yes. Right, that I, I think Gensler was just probably more articulate. And I also think... We're now sort of getting a read on Gensler, the, the person, and we realize he's, you know, he's a Democrat. He likes control and regulation. And I think he also feels that some of the higher ups in government, Biden, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Yellen, uh, Powell, have, have been pretty worried about crypto. Some of their language is like, hey, this stuff's used for bad stuff, yada, yada. So I don't think I think he wants to get promoted and uh, get better jobs in the government and uh, wants to make sure he's not screwing up. And he probably wants to have some deliverables on what he did for uh, about crypto while he was SEC chair. So uh, our analyst, James Seifert, um, has this phrase, which is he's holding the spot Bitcoin ETF hostage until he can get control of the exchanges. And then once he gets that and can sort of check that box in his resume, I think he'll let the spot ETF through. So there is a uh, proposal that the SEC put out there, which didn't mention crypto, but it might have big effects, which is that they want to change the definition of exchange. Uh, you guys probably would even be better to interpret this than I would. But the idea would be that you could put in alternative trading systems, um, including crypto exchanges, under exchange. If you do that, all of a sudden, the SEC has some control over the exchanges just like that. So if that proposal is implemented, um, we think that that's the 
that's the mountain to get over. Once that's done and exchanges are now under Gensler's uh, domain, we feel the spot ETF should come pretty soon after that. So we're looking at maybe middle of 2023. That's our estimate. Interesting. Well, I mean, there, there has been a lot of discussion about that uh, particular proposal. Another way to look at that is it's just a way of uh, SEC basically saying, look, if you functionally perform, uh, find other ways of performing the same functions that exchanges perform today, then you have to be functionally regulated the same. You can't you know, find easy loop, loopholes to avoid it. And, and to put a slightly different spin on um, his uh, attitude in the sector, um, I, I think he's been very articulate in saying crypto offers all kinds of uh, possibilities and things that should be pursued, but it's not going to be sustainable long term if it exists outside some kind of regulatory construct and umbrella that people can have faith in and confidence in um, that, you know, ultimately the sketchy practices will overtake uh, everything else and discourage people from investing. Yeah. Although... You know, dollars are used for all kinds of bad things. Uh, I, I think I'm just a little more liberal. Um, Hester Peirce is one of the commissioners, and I, I tend to side with her. She's a little more libertarian on this stuff. And other countries are now letting spot ETFs through, and they work fine. Um, also, by by approving an ETF, it's almost a way to to help the exchanges be more uh, above board and you know getting their acts together because market makers won't use them unless they feel like they can trust it and get good pricing. So by approving the ETF, you actually unleash all of the market-making power of the U.S. onto the exchanges, and they're, they're going to want to compete for those dollars. So I'm actually of the, of the thought that the spot ETF helps them with the exchanges. Uh, they, they don't see it that way, but that's my take. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's clear that, you know, regulation aside, if you do have these, it, it will flatten the costs because when you – you know, I, I've been tooling around, you know, trying to uh, on the FTX app and like trying to buy like crypto here and there, and it's 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 expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think the crypto exchanges underestimate how much ETFs will rock their world. I think crypto thought, oh, we're rocking ETFs world because look, these e these ETF people are so cr excited about a crypto ETF. But I think that they don't realize how lean and mean the ETF industry is. They don't hardly make any money on management fees because of Vanguard effect. And the market makers are are really good. They they only take about 1.5 basis points of the 35 trillion dollars that's traded every year on ETFs. We actually did the math. Market makers in the U.S. make about, I believe it was, I want to say seven or eight billion on 30 trillion dollars of volume. Crypto intermediaries, those exchanges, make uh, four times that on one thirtieth of the volume. And that's because of those commissions that you're talking about. And so I think ETFs that are spot and they're good and they track the market um, and they you're going to trade a spot, uh, a GLD or any ETF costs one basis point to trade. That's going to be look very good compared to 40 bips, 60 bips, or in, um, what's the one that Coinbase is uh, 150. <laughs> that's a lot of money for one trade. So I think that this will help uh, the little guy. Uh, if the ETFs can kind of apply some cost pressures to those crypto exchanges, which make a ton of money. I mean, you've seen that they hire all kinds of celebrities for commercials. Um, there's, they're all billionaires now. It's, it's, a, it's a very good industry. That, but they were first. They, you know, that's capitalism. They got there first. Yeah. They set it up. But I do think cost pressures are probably going to come um, amongst each other for sure. But the ETF will, will add to that.
One of the interesting uh, recent examples of some of the risks you can get into with uh, ETFs, I know about this because I listened to you recent podcast that you did. I I prep for these things, uh, unlike Ronan. Uh, I'll edit that out because he clearly doesn't. Um, Was, uh, you know, the example of the the Russian uh, sanctions uh, and uh, the, the, the impact that that had in completely drying up uh, any liquidity in ETS because they had nothing that they could trade on the basis of. Uh, so that's sort of a um, maybe a very specific and one-off kind of example, but uh, it seems like um, these kind of un- unanticipated sort of geopolitical uh, situations can throw a wrench into any sort of uh, trading market. I like the RSX ETF. That's the one you're talking about? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's yeah, he actually um, did do some homework. He did do some homework, yeah, Eric. Yeah. I take it back. He did. Yeah. I thought he, he was bullshitting I, I, just to get the pronunciation <laughs> of your name. But well, actually, I knew when you pronounced my name right, you did something, <laughs> yeah, some homework, because yeah. only about mm-hmm. a 20% of people get it right. So yeah. um, congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to get it, to have someone get it right sometimes. Um, so yeah, RSX is a really unique situation. So over the years, many times, ETFs tracking uh, different markets, uh, the market closes. Like Egypt had a stock market that closed for two months and EGPT traded on. It just becomes like a closed-end fund for a while. It just trades a little different than what the NAV is because the NAV is stuck in time and the ETFs trading and there's price discovery. The same thing happens every night with Japan. EWJ is trading all day, Japan's closed. So it's like a bigger version of that. That's happened time and time again. RSX did that for a while, but then the exchanges said RSX can't trade either. That's new, never happened. Oh, so the ETF itself couldn't yes. trade. So the right. ETF yeah, itself couldn't trade. Although that's not Van Eck. They would, I'm sure they they won't want it to trade. They yeah. they like the volume. But the CBOE and NICE uh, said you cannot trade these Russia ETFs. This is unique. It basically this is involved in a massive US government geopolitical situation with sanctions. The time before this was before ETFs, which I ran in Cuba. ETFs happened after that. So this is not unprecedented, but it's unprecedented since the ETF arrived in 93. Um, and I think, look, these ETFs didn't have a ton of money. I think what this really speaks more to is that that's why they call them the emerging markets. <laughs> I mean, I think for a while we get, same with junk bonds. I think we, we get lulled into thinking they're fine. And, and then like, you know, the cre- they can't pay their bills or there's an uh, authoritarian government that invades a country or something like that. And you're like, oh yeah, that's why they're called that. <laughs> Because obviously, if you're a mutual fund that owns Russia, those closed up shop and halted redemptions even before the ETF did. So anybody owning Russia, anything has gone through the same process. That said, I still I still think they should let RSX trade. That's my view. Uh, that way there can be some price discovery. And uh, because maybe at some point, Russia, there's a treaty or some kind of agreement and uh, maybe they open up. And if you want RSX, you would want to participate in that jump up because it's only fair. So it's a it's a complicated situation, but yeah, that is a anomaly up until this point where the ETF doesn't trade. Normally, it trades through everything, even if the underlying's frozen. Interesting. So uh, the the underlyings are not trading now, or is it is that just due to sanction? Like, I, obviously, I get now the ETF's not, but how does this thing get on halted? <laughs> or it's just too much speculation. But I'm just. Well, I guess the exchange at some point would have to go, okay, we're okay with the trading. I don't know what that yeah. would take. Probably, I, honestly, I think what you need to look for is whether Putin like calms down and like gets yeah. into some agreement, a peace deal. And then maybe wait like a week after that. And then, you know, at, at that point, maybe, I don't know, um, uh, the London Stock Exchange says, we'll let the ADRs or GDRs trade, which are Russian stocks trading on their exchange. 
and there's just this general relaxation of all this like stop everything co- concept. And then it feels ultimately, like we're a eventually, long way away from that, yeah, the Russia stocks trade. It, we're we're away. We're not we're not close to that. Um, yeah. So I, I'm looking for a peace deal or something like that before yeah. I even think about this. What we're also watching is: is it possible RSX just we're going to liquidate and just give everybody their money back? Which I hope they don't do, because if you bought it at like it was just trading at thirty three dollars like a couple months before this happened. Let's say you bought it at thirty five bucks. Now it's worth three. I would much rather just hang tight for years, even than take exactly. than have you cash me out at nothing or a dollar because it's almost like a call option at that point. And I I think it's more fair just to hang in there. If you're Vanek, but we'll see. Makes sense. Do you have any other questions on ETF before? I have we no specific question? questions on ETFs. We ask all okay. our guests the same question. Tell us your favorite Wall Street movie and why. That's a good question. You know, it's funny. I see all these people on Twitter really going crazy about how um, Margin Call like is the best. I, I don't know. Like I saw it. it it's good. But I think I'd I'd have to go with I'm going to go a little out of the box here and go with Trading Places. Ah, um, <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. You know why? Because uh, you mentioned Trading Places in one of your recent podcasts. Because you were uh, I think you were um, broadcasting from the uh, floor of the uh, Philadelphia train station. I get that right. Yes, uh, yes, that's where Trading Places was filmed. I'm from Philly. I honestly think I think Philly that they're way too much into Rocky. They play Rocky before the football game. It's like enough Rocky. It's like enough. <laughs> They should, they need to embrace Trading Places as the quintessential Philly movie about the underdogs. Um, but I, that movie is genius. That that could have been a college thesis statement about everything: environmental versus genetic, uh, the markets, uh, cornering a market. It's it's just one of the greatest Wall Street movies, and it's got a human touch. Um, that said, between Margin Call and Big Short, I actually like Big Short better. I, I just really enjoyed uh, the acting in that was fabulous, and I like Wall Street the movie. If that's on, I'll, I'll watch it. But I think Trading Places, to me, is the most fun, the most timeless, and I like the message in it, so I, I'd go with that. No, it's a great call. We, we ask everybody that question. Only a couple of people have said Trading Places. Mm-hmm. But Probably it, a movie that Jack Bogle would have uh, approved of. Maybe. What are the top two that people say? I would say, believe it or not, it's uh, Wall Street, the original one, but second... I would say it's definitely the Wolf of Wall Street. A lot of people say that. A lot of people surprisingly, say that, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's entertaining, right? And um, it's, it's a kind little of funny long when you meet your friends and they ask you, "Is it really like that?" And you're like, "No." <laughs> I think it <laughs> was that like cool. that. Yeah. Which, no, by the way, when yeah. when you see the Wolf of Wall Street, and again, that's where that is probably pretty indicative of '80s slash maybe early '90s Wall Street culture. Um, that's also what attracted me to the Bogle pro- project was that, you know. It, it, I don't know about you, but if I was around then, I probably would have engaged in all that. I, I wouldn't have been like, hey, let's lower costs. I've been like, hey, let's yeah. have a party. Yeah, let's yeah. let's hire, uh, let's spend a bunch of money on on this crazy stuff. I, I just, and I say that in the book. Um, I know the book is like, hey, Bogle's a great guy. And there might be that idea that like, well, everyone else relative to him is like doing bad things. And I, I constantly stop in the book and say, people are really nice in, the, in this industry. I, I think sometimes incentives are, might be misaligned. And I think sometimes there's inherent tension between serving your clients and the shareholders or the owners of the company. But more than that, I'm just like, I I would have done, I would not have done what he did. I would have spent, I would have kept the dollar fee money, spent it on this, uh, basically sponsored a sports stadium. I would have done all the things they did. 
I'm that, but that's why the book is on this guy. So I, I try to make sure I'm not like casting some sort of like judgment on people who are in the industry who might not be as pure as he is or whatever, uh, because <laughs> no one is. He's he's a unique dude. I also think that he was born 200 years too late. Uh, in the book, I premise he had an 18th century soul and just I don't know, he was just sort of miscast both in industry and time. But again, I try to use my voice in the book to say like, you know. Um, also, I also mentioned that. He bashes a lot of the industry, but he bashes ETFs, and that's my world. So I, I try to explain. He, he was a, uh, as savage to my neck of the woods as yours. Trust me. We're going to time this podcast with the release of that book, and I'm sure mm-hmm. many of our listeners who are mostly in the industry will be interested to read that. And, and we're we, hoping that yeah. we get complimentary uh, signed copies of the books ourselves yes. and in return. Well, I, what you do know, we I have for our guests? In return, we have a special, special present because no one leaves here with nothing. You get your very own pair of boxes and line socks for joining our podcast. Oh, and and we're told awesome. time and time again how you know the normal swag stock sock mm-hmm. normal swag socks. <laughs> that's a hard one to say. Normal swag socks are terrible. These are really really comfortable. Enjoy yeah. them in good health. Socks and umbrellas. Those are the two swag things <laughs> that seem to last the longest in my household. <laughs> just just it's like protection. That's the, exactly. You know, people go crazy with the sort. Of, they try too hard sometimes. I think you just go for like that's a good one. Yeah. No, I'm I'm wearing a pair myself right now. But so, uh, by uh, the way, for your listeners, yeah. I know Brad. He was one of the 50 people I interviewed, um, and uh, and one of the people I featured at the end. So I there's and he had a lot of good things to say. I have a chapter on trading, and he had some good commentary on the whole Robin Hood movement and whatnot. Um, oh. But anyway, just a little heads up because I'm sure people listening here like him. Or, yeah. No. Uh, fantastic. Than him. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to reading it. We appreciate you joining. You, you, you're a great guest because you're a podcaster. You're a very easy guest. Mm-hmm. John and I did not have much to do, so we appreciate that, and we thank absolutely. you very much for joining it's been, us. Uh, you know, more intellectual and cognitive than many of our podcasts. I'll edit that out too. <laughs> <laughs> no, please keep that. I like it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I need that. All right, anyway, all right. Um, yeah. Cheers, thank Eric. you guys. Yeah, you got it. Talk to you later. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster, with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. Thank you.